I'm Cece Powers, and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve public awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. Today, I'll be talking to Sanbula Zaidi and Raul Alvarez from the Hassle-Free Clinic in Toronto about sexually transmitted infections and stigma. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as part of our post-COVID recovery. Okay, I'm Raul, Raul Alvarez. I work at the Hassle-Free Clinic, the main insurance clinic. I work as a sexual health counselor. What I do there is uh, mostly HIV and STI testing and counseling as well, follow-ups, a little bit of like case management, but mostly uh, providing a, a sexual health like services from testing to uh, counseling and referral services as well. Raul has a background in medicine and over 10 years in the healthcare sector. He moved to Canada from Venezuela in 2014. He provides HIV and STI testing and counseling to men who have sex with men and other priority populations. Raul brings a people-first approach to everything he does in and out of work. One thing I'm curious about is, um, like, what are some of the most common STIs you see nowadays? Because people have perceptions of the kind of STIs that men who have sex with men or men in general might have. But um, on the ground, what's the reality? Well, in our clinic, which, uh, like I mentioned before, is mostly male clients and trans, uh, highest rates of STIs are mostly syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and also herpes and HPV, but mostly gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. And because, for example, gonorrhea and chlamydia is higher also in men who have sex with men because uh, well, they also practice uh, oral and anal sex. So we have all these infections that very common in oral um, um, uh, pharyngeal gonorrhea and chlamydia, rectal gonorrhea and chlamydia, and also urethral gonorrhea and chlamydia, along with syphilis, along with HPV and herpes as well, but mostly gonorrhea and chlamydia syphilis. So like syphilis is a really interesting one because I think when most people hear it, they hear think of something that's like uh, from another time, you know, like almost like a, like a 19th century, early 20th century disease. Um, now, how do most how do most people react when they get that syphilis diagnosis? Uh, in a specific with syphilis, people uh, you can see a lot of reactions. That's what we see from people. They are surprised. To people, there were, oh, well, I have syphilis in the past. I know how this is. So, yeah, it, it can be, it depends on the person. Like, if this is a person that's getting tested for the first time and they come back, oh, syphilis. Like, sometimes they have, what is that? And then we explain, it is this. We treat it like that. And we have other cases in where they're not too surprised because they either had symptoms, they had syphilis in the past, so they know how, what they feel sometimes. And yeah, yeah, that's mostly what we see. Uh, but yes, a lot of people are, oh, syphilis. But it's, trust me, it's very, very current. <laughs> that's so interesting because it also seems like there's quite 
it's not so much, it's very much at two ends of people who are very aware of what it is and just seem sort of like understanding it as just like another, as, as a disease they've already had versus people who've never heard of it and have no preconceived notions of the yeah, disease yeah. itself. I wanted to maybe also ask you, you had mentioned the last time we talked that the the language itself around diseases and the names that they have really ha- causes like a visceral reaction in many people. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit in terms of both how it impacts people's feelings about the diagnosis and also maybe their uh, their approach to seeking treatment. Uh, yeah, it happens a lot, especially, and I think I mentioned that before with herpes, right? Just when you listen to that word, we tend to freak out. And, you know, it's a lot of stigma around that word. It's like, if, if we compare between herpes and syphilis, I think herpes has more impact. It's like, oh, no. A lot of people freak out, especially when you don't know what is this about. We see a lot of clients, they seek our services, uh, with concerns about herpes, about symptoms, about how is it transmitted, about treatment, and also how are they going to disclose that to their partners. I don't want to say that they make a big thing about it, a big deal about it. Sometimes people do, but it's mostly because it's the lack of information. So when we see this client, we explain, listen, um, a lot of people have the virus and they don't show symptoms. It's a very common virus. it was playing about the transmission, about prevention, but you know, sometimes viruses are really hard to predict the way how they're gonna act. So that's part of the job, the, the, the work we do at the clinic, but yeah, a clear example of that is that therapy for sure. Interesting the way you describe it, because yeah, like I, like most people, we hear herpes and it, it's almost like a death sentence or something, right? Or it, it's, it's, it's gross, like, oh no, like, almost like a pariah status for someone. But when the way you're describing it, it sounds a lot like the way COVID manifests. Some people are like, oh, I had like a headache and I felt bad for a couple of days. And other people are in the ICU and it's the same virus. Yeah, yeah. With herpes, hopefully you won't be in there in the ICU. But yeah, but he said like, is there re- different reactions? It also happened the same way when we, when we talked, when it, we talked about syphilis, like people with herpes, people they have had herpes in the past, they know how to react, but people for the first time, they don't know how to, but also when we see clients, they have sex with someone who tested positive for herpes, even though they don't have symptoms, that's, those are the most difficult clients because they're freaked out. So that, I don't know, my girlfriend, my boyfriend tested positive for herpes. I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. Then we can't listen. It were like this. You should do this. And, you know, this is, is, is part of that is educating them about the, the infection. Right? Our objectives just show them that it is it's painful. It doesn't look good, but it is a virus that there's not a lot that we can do, unfortunately, to control it. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I mean, like, really, this all speaks back to kind of the, the the theme of what we're talking about today, which is stigma. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about, um, like, how stigma impacts the ways that these STIs are spreading throughout the community. Uh, it has a negative impact 
in some situation. Why? Because people feel embarrassed to access care uh, when it's related to sexual health. And that's that can be related to too many factors like religion, culture. Remember that we live in a multicultural city. So we have all these people from different countries, different cultures, different languages, different religions, like in the same place. So it, it, it won't be too difficult for some people to access this because they don't want to, they don't want to feel judged, right? And there is a lot of judgment and stigma is still in um, healthcare, unfortunately, uh, with maybe um, a healthcare setting, family physicians, like people sometimes, like what we hear from over clients, they don't, sometimes they don't want to go see their family physician because maybe their family physician, it happens a lot. No, I don't want you to indicate an HIV test. I don't think you need that. And when you when they hear that, it's like, okay, I don't want to disclose my sexual uh, health information or whatever to this person because I won't get proper care. And so this person won't seek uh, uh, health, uh, health for his sexual health issues anywhere else. So Chances are this person has H is HIV positive or have any other STI. They continue being sexually active, then they're spreading all these infections all over uh, their sexual partner. So yeah, it can have a very, very negative impact. And it is still a, we're still working on it. There's still a lot of work to do uh, around that. It's incredible how systemic stigma is, the way you're describing this, because again, you know, from, from my perspective, I think of stigma and I think of, you know, like my feelings of disgust or my feelings of shame. Yeah. Whereas um, when you see it penetrating into the actual care people receive from their healthcare provider, you can really see that the, the misinformation that we perceive on the end of just sort of the general public is still existing yeah. within the medical profession. A lot we're putting because as a healthcare professional, we have people rely on us and they were putting a barrier and then they're like, oh, I don't know what else to do. So that's also part of all the work we do. We always try to help people how to navigate the system, in, especially it's related to sexual health. Uh, when we want to prescribe, indicate PrEP or we explain to them, listen, you can have access PrEP through this clinic. They're very LGBTQ friendly. They will explain everything rather than, you know, going to GGP sometime. Uh, we have a lot of family physicians that are really good about sexual health, but we also have a lot of other healthcare providers, including uh, family physicians that are now really good about sexual health. And that, uh, like I mentioned before, is a, is a big issue, unfortunately. Would you be able to maybe explain a little bit about PrEP and how it's something that can help to counter stigma? Uh, yes, uh, PrEP, for those who don't know, means pre-exposure pre prophylaxis. It's a, uh, it's a medication for people that are HIV negative. And the whole uh, objective of this treatment is to prevent the HIV infection, right? Uh, you can take it episodic or you can take it daily. Uh, PrEP is great. We always talk about PrEP with our clients. Uh, it's 99% effective as long as you take it properly. And also the good thing about PrEP is that you need to do, you have to do follow-ups every three months with your PrEP prescriber in order to get a, uh, a refill, a 
prescription for your uh, treatment. And it's good because it will help all these uh, people to be more proactive about sexual health, getting tested every three months. It's good also because if you got an infection, it's like, okay, it may, it may give you an idea. Okay, I got tested three months ago. I was negative. Now I'm positive. Maybe during this period of time, I, 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 I contracted like on a reacclimate or whatever. Uh, at the beginning, it was a lot of stigma around PrEP also within the community because like, oh, you're on PrEP. So that means that you're having sex with a condom with a lot of people, which it happened, yeah. But at the same time, you, you need to see in the positive side. Okay, this person is taking PrEP. This person might be having sex with a lot of people without condom, yes. But they're getting checked every three months. They're being very proactive. So that's that's the way we see it. That's the way we we tell our clients, listen, you need to, I would recommend you do it this way because it will have a positive in, impact in your in your sexual health. Yeah, what you're what you're talking about is very much like a classic harm reduction approach and also a very sex positive approach. Yeah. And I mean, of course, ideally everybody is using condoms every time, but even then condoms break. Things like HPV transmit skin to skin, not necessarily through uh, you know, insertion of a penis into an orifice. Um so it's yeah, it's really it's great to hear about prep as a sort of a counter stigma measure. Um which is really, yeah, I think really valuable also to see how it's really addressing the needs of a specific community as well. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could say one thing to people who are avoiding treatment for an STI because of fears of stigma, what would you say? Uh, avoiding treatment and also avoiding testing in general. Anything, so, anything you think is really important. Uh, I I would tell them just go get tested. I know that going to a sexual health clinic is not fun. It's not a place where you're going to feel, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell a stranger about my sexual activities. Yeah, I know it's uncomfortable, but it's something that, that we should do for, for, um, for us, for our partners, is better. Is I always tell my clients, I know it's difficult to come in, come in here, but it's better for you to know that you got something and we know how we're gonna help you rather than you not knowing that. And then you are, you get me sexually active with a lot of partners and spreading all these infections. So that will be my advice, just go get tested. I know it's difficult, but it's very late doing it that way. So. If there is something going on related to your sexual health, we will definitely will be able to help you. Raul's work at the Men and Trans Clinic often touches on different issues than what Sanbula Zaidi sees at the Women and Trans Clinic. She has been volunteering and working within the sexual and reproductive health sector for nearly 10 years. Her role involves prevention, treatment, counseling, education, and empowered decision-making around the diverse spectrum of sexual health. So Sambula, um, I guess we're going to start with a, a pretty pretty basic question, and that is, uh, so the hassle-free, you get all kinds of people coming in, and I'm wondering what the some of the most common STIs are that you're seeing. Right. So some of the most common STIs we see, and definitely chlamydia. You know, in the sexual health world, we often refer to it as the common cold of the STI world. So that's something we see quite a bit. Gonorrhea. 
Um, lately, especially during the pandemic, we have been seeing an uptick in syphilis uh, in the women trans clinic. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then herpes as well. That's one of the most common ones. Interesting. It's Syphilis is something that I think most people, when they hear it, they think of like the 1930s or, or diseases that, you know, that like Lenin had or Catherine the Great or something. Um, why now? Why the COVID pandemic for this, uh, this rise in the cases you're seeing? Well, I think just with syphilis and STIs in general, we are just seeing higher rates of STIs. And, you know, that is just due to the pandemic. As the pandemic drags on and people are coping and engaging in activities and behaviors um, for self-soothing, for you know, seeking community, for making bonds, you know, STIs become a result of that as well. We, you know, during the pandemic at our clinic, it's never stopped. So, we are still seeing people who are engaging in sexual behaviors, you know, regardless of what public health measures have said. You know, I, I remember a while ago, you know, some of the recommendations were around wearing a mask while having sex or engaging in sex from behind. <laughs> that was one of the things that they had put out. But people are seeking connections. And inevitably, you know, as a result, there will be STIs. So that's one of the things that we are seeing. That's such an incredible disconnect between how the reasons people have sex and then what what some sort of public health message being sent out is, as though that, that people are are only looking for a specific thing in their sexual activity and like a mask is somehow um, not going to become part of it. 100%, you know, and I think that's something that we've been seeing in our work a lot is that especially initially in the pandemic, people would come in you know, and there would be shame around, I'm still engaging in, you know, sexual activities, I'm still meeting people and hooking up, I'm trying to date. And that was something that we had to tackle and discuss. And that's the way stigma during the pandemic has played out. You know, uh, people are being told, okay, well, you know, sexuality, sex is not a necessary part of being alive. And people are still going out, still having sex, and then coming in, seeking treatment, you know, seeking advice, seeking um, medical help. And we had to have you know, more wholesome, nuanced discussions around the role that sex plays and people's ability to feel. Yeah, I mean, that makes it makes total sense. There's so much in our lives that are restricted right now that you can frame it as acting out, but you could also frame it as as if this is your only release for all of your feelings that it it really makes a lot of sense for a lot of people yeah well so you had mentioned a few um stis and i'm wondering you know not just during the pandemic but um sort of like in general maybe the past like 10 years or even throughout your career how do people generally react to the diagnoses they get for various stis are there differences or is it very common across them i mean i think there are Obviously, there's a variety of emotions and reactions. A lot of that can depend on, you know, exposure to sexual health education, um, what your friend groups, families are like, what the conversation around sex has been throughout your life. But I think there's also universality in the reactions that we see. You know, often those appointments where we're discussing a diagnosis and treatment, I often think of it as a microcosm of just larger societal mores and norms. You know, the shame that we assign to sex, the punitive nature of STIs, you know, we think and are taught, you know, just through so many different ways of how 
STIs are a consequence of sex rather than just being a part of sex. You know, uh, we can get many infections and it doesn't necessarily have to be a consequence. Like if you're getting strep throat, you're not being lectured by your doctor as to all the reasons why you got strep throat. Whereas with sex, you know, immediately um, people have had experiences in their lives where they've gone to doctors or other healthcare providers and they've had conversations that really lack the nuance of everything that impacts a person and why they might possibly get an STI. It could be, you know, because they were out for a night having fun, an STI happened. It could be a larger pattern of behavior that requires empathy and discussion, you know, and harm reduction. But I often feel that with sex, sexuality, sexual health, there isn't a lot of training or, you know, an awareness around what kind of support and empathy a person may need, or maybe no discussion at all. Sometimes people just have an STI, they need their treatment, and they want to be out, and that's okay too. It really reminds me of, um, like, it not reminds me, but you made me think about this idea of, like, you'll see this uh, with sexual assault a lot, the idea of a perfect victim. And that very often, like you didn't use this example, and I think that was really valuable. Like people talk about, oh, the wife and her husband brought home an STI, and now she has this shame that she doesn't deserve, as opposed to this bigger picture where it's like, well, maybe actually nobody deserves to feel ashamed for their STI. Yes, I mean, whether you're in a monogamous, you know, marriage for 30 years, or you're a person who's just exploring their sexuality and trying out different things, And, you know, I aim to think that everybody deserves to enjoy sex. I mean, sexuality is not compulsory. There's many people who don't engage in sex. Um, But for those who do, you know, STIs are just a part of the spectrum of the sexual experience rather than being the end point. And I think that's often how it's framed, that you will have sex. And then if you're not careful, one day you will have an STI. And that's it. Point A to B rather than, you know, it just being part of that whole experience, that it's a possibility. And if it does happen, that's something that can be maintained, taken care of, discussed about and analyzed. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's very much uh, also something I think in our society, uh, we see it so much now with COVID where people really sort of are pushing back against um, medicine and science. I mean, this has been building for a long time, but this is also really what's given this us this freedom to sort of separate uh, STIs from a terminal point because we are able to, to treat people and it becomes like you say, like with chlamydia, it's the common cold now in terms of uh, medically as opposed to something that's going to impact you for the rest of your life. And it's very interesting because it is the common cold, but the stigma that comes around having chlamydia, for example, even though it's quite easy to transmit, you know, it brings up so many feelings. And I think when we talk about how it impacts people, I think all the socialization around gender, the roles that we are taught from an early age, you know, who is deserving a pleasure, who's deserving exploration. Those are the themes that I see in those appointments. So when you ask about, you know, what some common reactions are, I find often people are willing or they feel comfortable. Those are the kinds of things that we dive into rather than the STI itself. We go over, you know, chlamydia being extremely easy to treat. Um, We talk about the antibiotics you have to take, but then it often can open up discussions around things like 
do I feel comfortable advocating for condom usage within these hookups? Um, am I, you know, in a place where I'm engaging in condomless sex because I don't feel comfortable talking about it with my partners? I've gone out of a relationship I don't feel great about. Or for some people, you know, I prefer not using condoms because it's more pleasurable. There's such a variety of responses to it. So I think one of the things, you know, that these appointments bring out is that we have people finally having a space to be able to discuss all the factors that come into play around STI transmissions. And it's not just about STIs, but it's also about dynamics. It's about negotiation. It's about relationships, you know, with your own body, with others' bodies, um, what you were taught about sex. Yeah, I think that socialization piece is so interesting, um, especially for people who, I guess, are, are, are gendered female. Um, this idea that uh, of not pushing back, not advocating, being submissive or compliant, even for people who aren't, don't identify that way within a context, a dynamic, especially of heterosexual sex, there's expected to be a partner who leads and a partner who follows, um, which really in many ways kind of, it, it then makes sense that the, the, the feeling of being victimized would also be heightened. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the clients that I see feel a lot of onus. You know, and I think it's pretty interesting when we look at, you know, for herpes, for example. So we offer a lot of counseling around herpes um, because, you know, it's a highly stigmatized virus. This isn't, it's a herpes, you know, like chickenpox is a herpes virus, right? But, and when, you, you know, there was all these stories, you know, back in the day when people used to have chickenpox parties and put all their kids together because it was inevitable that they would get chicken pox, you know, before the vaccine was readily available. And it's similar to herpes, you know, this type of herpes, but we don't talk about, um, you know, how common it is for people to have herpes, how it's something that, you know, it's a possibility to be getting herpes. And when we talk about herpes, we have a different name for oral herpes, it's cold sores. And then all of a sudden when it moves to your genitals, that's when that stigma comes into play. So when we have those counseling sessions around herpes, a lot of it is around the discussion of rejection. You know, um, we're talking about always in the backdrop and specter uh, of violence, you know, particularly when we're talking to people who are cisgender female, trans female, female identifying, you know, um, there's always larger discussions around exactly as you so beautifully put it around, you know, who's submissive, who's the leader, who's going to, you know, keep things in check, who's going to keep, you know, sexual desires at bay. And it's a lot of responsibility that is assigned to people. And I see that with my clients where, you know, they're diagnosed with herpes and they're talking about, okay, well, I have to inform former partners, I have to inform, you know, future partners right away before we engage in sexual activity. And one of the conversations I always have with them is like, well, you also got herpes. And sometimes, you know, you didn't know who you got it from, but I see that you are taking on a lot of responsibility to take care of others when this is a virus that's common. And it's something that you can put out there, have a good conversation about it, but you also have to accept people's autonomy um, and engaging in sexual behavior with you. But that also is due to, once again, just our socialization and the way that we treat STIs. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I've, I've heard it compared to the way that people react to an AIDS diagnosis or an HIV diagnosis. Um, and, you know, again, HIV is something that can also be really well managed today. 
Um, but it, do, it definitely has a much more significant day-to-day -day impact on people, just in terms of medication and that sort of thing, not necessarily disclosure. So this idea that people with herpes are now feeling that it's almost as though their infection must be public, public knowledge, is a really um, problematic inversion of this idea of what our sexual private life is supposed to be. I agree. I mean, I think with, you know, viruses, you bring up HIV, AIDS, it's also who are these viruses impacting? You know, they're impacting marginalized communities that have been historically ignored by the medical community. Um, you know, herpes is not gender specific. It can happen to all genders. I think some of the things that I see just in my work, you know, um, I work with cisgender women, trans women, folks who are non-binary, gender fluid, gender non-conforming. And it's interesting to see some of the discussions that come up, you know, in the ways that people want to navigate their STIs, in the fears that they feel around disclosure, you know, um, some of the experiences that people have had when they've disclosed STIs and they've been stigmatized, their status has been made public by scorn lovers and partners. So those fears are real. And this is what plays into, just as I said, like around the whole specter of violence. And violence is not just about physical violence. It's also about emotional and mental violence. It's really disturbing to hear it stated so plainly as violence when it's something that, again, when you talk about stigma, it's on the person who now has an infection and in addition to that, they're now carrying this weight of actual violence. And like you say, social violence, um, the ways that people can be stigmatized in a broader community, in ways that have nothing to do with having actual sex with them. Exactly. Wow. Um, I'd like to ask if maybe there's some misconceptions for that we can all sort of understand about these STIs not related so much to this idea of how it impacts people emotionally, but the, the sort of very core stigma around what they mean as, as, you know, a gross disease, that kind of thing. Like, what are some general ideas people have about something like chlamydia or herpes or gonorrhea or anything else that re you really need to break down in the sort of day to day? Well, you know, we divide STIs into two categories, uh, treatable and manageable. So treatable, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, you know, you can take medications for that and that's something you can treat. Things like HIV and herpes, those are manageable. Um, you know, you take uh, antiretrovirals, you take your medications and that's something you can manage. I think one of the most common things that we hear is that, you know, the only way to truly know if you have an STI is if you're symptomatic when often with most STIs, it's very common, particularly in the earlier stages, to have no symptoms at all. So that's one of the things that we hear about quite a bit. Um, another thing that we hear often about is, you know, if you are wearing condoms, there isn't a possibility of getting an STI. And that's unfortunately not true because there is skin-to-skin -skin transmission with things like herpes and HPV, genital warts. Um, another thing that we often hear is, you know, if I'm performing oral sex, I won't be getting an STI. And I think that just points you know, to the larger issue of uh, medical cis-heteronormativity, where we don't consider the many 
and myriad ways people have sex, you know, orally, rectally, and you can still get STIs. For example, you can get chlamydia and gonorrhea in your throat, um, in your rectum. So I think, you know, these larger misconceptions also point to the gaps within sexual health education that we aren't taught about how to test for STIs, the ways that they manifest. Um, you know, it's often taught in a very fear-mongering way. One of the things that I like to talk about when I go um, discuss STIs and sexual health with students, teachers, and training is I have a pretty vivid memory when I was taking um, a health class in high school where we were all given flashcards and some of the flashcards had STIs, some of them didn't. We had to swap the cards around and then we flipped them over and it just showed us what STIs we had. And that was it. That was the only thing that game taught us. There was actually no discussion around, okay, well, you have chlamydia or you have gonorrhea. What comes next? You know, how, where do you go? What does treatment look like? Um, what does it look like to have partner notification? What those conversations could look like? We just all laughed and then just felt scared and uncomfortable. And those are the kind of lessons that we carry with ourselves. You know, those are the things that impact how we have these conversations. Incredible. It really speaks also to this concept you talked about as sort of like the, the terminal STI. Like, here's your card. You've got this and we're done. <laughs> Definitely. I was like, OK, so I have chlamydia and that's it. <laughs> I have it forever. I mean, we just had no context whatsoever around, you know, what comes next. It was really very, it was very much a way of telling teenagers, okay, you will get an STI. Good luck. And that's it. Wow. Do you find things are different today in terms of what teenagers who come in are educated in or, or have things not shifted much? You know, I think it's a spectrum. I think one of the greatest things about speaking to younger people, teenagers, is that there is such a fantastic flow of information on things like TikTok and Instagram. So there's a lot of community education happening on these platforms. So it's youth educating other youth. Um, I think in a city like Toronto, there are so many resources and youth-specific organizations, a lot of peer education. And I think that really, I, I noticed that. I noticed when younger people are coming in and the discussions we have around sex and sexuality. I mean, that's more of a generalized blanket statement as well. I still feel that some of those gaps that existed when I was in school or um, when other people have in school are still present, right? Because with Ontario sex ed curriculum, we were woefully behind. <laughs> I believe that, you know, the Curriculum hadn't been updated since the late 90s when it finally was revised. And then when it was revised, there was a huge backlash around including things like consent and gender identity um, and these ideas that have always existed, um, you know, and should be part of a comprehensive sexual health curriculum. So we have a very long way to go. That's yeah, it's interesting because those two things together, especially um, consent and gender identity, are you finding that they're impacting how people see themselves and their right to advocate for themselves? I think so. You know, I think because we are taught about a gender binary, you know, there isn't enough of a nuanced discussion. There's so much backlash and fear mongering around that as well. And just around consent, I find is often wholly confined to things like just sexual coercion, which is a huge part of consent education, but we aren't taught bodily autonomy. And that can begin at a young age. You know, we can, a lot of people are worried about over-sexualizing young children, but we can start laying foundations for, you know, if someone makes you feel uncomfortable, that feeling you have in the pit of your stomach, which we've all had, you know, that's something to listen to. 
And if you don't want somebody who is like an elder, who is a teacher, um, a family member hugging you or squeezing your shoulder in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, if you don't want to, you know, partake in the toxic baiting rituals of young boys harassing you on the playground, and that's a way of showing affection, you know, those are the conversations we can have at a young age. And that's what lays the foundations for consent. And consent isn't just about sex. Consent is about all relationships in your life, you know, your personal relationships, um, hierarchical relationships, work relationships, systemic (laughs) organizational relationships. So I think the conversation about consent is extremely important. And I think we actually rob children um, and future generations and people by not making that more deeply ingrained in our society. There are steps that are being taken. Consent is being taught in schools, but I think this needs to be one of the biggest public health measures that we do take is talking about consent. That's so interesting, this um, this big, big picture consent. It's I definitely have noticed, especially when as this new curriculum was coming in and sort of as you know, as the dialogue started to move, you'd get a lot of adults almost sort of with this backlash of like offended that they'd have to say, can I hug you? And these are the same people who would never in a million, like they, they're not going to, you know, stand behind a sexual abuser and say, and support them yet in their mind, it's still somehow a, uh, a burden on them to have to ask a child if they can hug them. Yeah, know, I completely agree with you. You know, I think, the way we often think about things is very much a dichotomy. Like I, if, you know, I support sexual violence or I don't, you know, I, I support non-consensual activity or I don't, but it is a spectrum, right? And the fact that we are so upset about asking a child, you know, can I hug you? Is this touch okay? Do you need this? Do you need that? I mean, I think part of it is that societally we've been raised to not teach children to advocate for themselves. There's very strict roles around caregiver versus child. And where do people learn consent? Where do people learn how to advocate for themselves? You know, do you suddenly at 12, 13, okay, now I'm going to suddenly teach you what consent means. I think that we're ignoring how early these things happen for people. You know, how early people experience things like sexual violence or non-consensual activity or touch or things that violate their norms and boundaries. Children experience that all the time. I see that in my work. I have people coming in and talking to me about how they wish they'd had discussions like this. Um, and this is where we see things like uh, internalized you know, victim blaming, where people feel that they've contributed you know, to whatever's happened to them. So These are conversations we need to be having. We need to be having them with children that are super young. We need to start laying, you know, those steps talking about what does consent mean? How does it impact people? What are the power dynamics? Who experiences, you know, what? Why are we doing this? Listening to you talk, it also makes me think about this idea of, um, of violence as an epidemic or an infectious disease, which is something that has been sort of floating in the air a bit more recently. And that, like you say, this sort of holistic way of looking at people's lives, that it's not just about your chlamydia, it's about this entire social structure around what it means to have chlamydia. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, in your work, what have you seen around the impact stigma has on treatment? I think, you know, people, 
often delay coming to the clinic or feel uncomfortable coming to the clinic because they've experienced conversations or situations, even if it hasn't been within a medical sphere from friends, you know, just from watching TV or media where STIs are often the butts of jokes. And that does have an impact. We internalize this messaging and people, you know, are scared they'll come into a clinic, be forced to explain how they contracted an STI, why, or be looked at judgmentally. And I think that really does impact people coming in seeking treatment, you know, making routine testing a part of just their sexual health repertoire. And that's how we see stigma playing out in how people access their sexual health. Mm. And on a related note, um, like how have you seen stigma impacting community spread? Well, I think what stigma does is it prevents people from having nuanced, wholesome conversations around STIs. You know, we aren't really taught when we discuss dating, hooking up and sex. Okay. So part of that is, you know, chatting with people about when was your last STI check, you know, or, um, maybe I have, you know, something like herpes, for example, or I'm going through a genital warts treatment and I'm supposed to be abstaining from general general contact right now. There is a lot of fear around rejection. That's one of the most common things we see around, you know, when people come in for STI testing and treatments. Um, there's obviously the concern about how it will affect people medically, but I find that people are more concerned about how will I notify partners um, that I have an STI. You know, they have to reach back and chat to people they've had sex in the past two months. How will I talk to partners in the future about having this STI that I have to manage? Will I be rejected? Will I be rejected for something that is wholly out of my control? And I think, you know, that fear, that stigma, that's what's preventing people to come in and seek the kind of treatment and help and education that they deserve to have. Well, I mean... What you guys are doing over there is really important work, and uh, it absolutely is something that if stigma is keeping people from coming in, it's obviously a huge problem. But it also seems to me, just listening to you, that there's almost in some ways, like, it can also propel people into the door. Not that stigma is a good thing, but, like, they're, they're less likely to brush it off. That's true, actually. You know, that's a really uh, salient point that you've made, that... It can also propel people into coming into a clinic. They need to get tested. They need to find out their status. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I would hope that it wouldn't be fear <laughs> that is making you come into a clinic, but it is. That is a psychological motivation for people. I need to find out. I need to do this. You know, I often see people coming in saying, I need to find out if I'm clean. And just that dichotomy of clean versus dirty, you know, even just common, um, you know, idioms and euphemisms we use around sex, like, and the clean built of hell, you know, clean. And one of the conversations I have with people is, okay, so if you're not clean, then what are you? Are you dirty? Where does that word come from for you? So I wish, and I hope as, you know, we continue doing this work that we do see some systemic changes around sexual health, just being considered part of your health, which it is, and that people are coming in for checkups the same way you would as you were going in for an annual physical. Yeah, I mean, that sounds that sounds pretty, pretty positive and uh, a good way to make people in general feel more comfortable about uh, sex when they're having sex with people, whether it's a long-term partner or, you know, hookups. I'm wondering, um, 
maybe to close out this interview because it's been such an interesting and rich conversation touching a lot of really uh, topics I didn't realize were going to come in. Um, and if you could say one thing to people who are avoiding coming in for treatment because they may or may not have an STI, what would you say to them? I would say I understand why you're hesitant or scared to come in. You have been taught to fear your body. You have been taught that love does not include taking care of your own body and finding out things that are difficult to discuss. You're scared of the conversations it may or may not bring. You're frightened of the judgment that may come along with it. And that's understandable. This is not something that's happened to you in isolation and in a bubble. This is something that you've been taught. This is something you've been taught from family, from media, from people around you. There are bigger forces here that have led to this fear for you. If you come in, you can dictate the way you have that appointment go, how that treatment goes. You can take your treatment and leave. You can have a larger discussion if you'd like. There are so many complex layers here that led to getting this STI, whether it was a night of fun, whether it was something that you didn't want, whether it's a larger pattern of self-harm, you're a complex and nuanced person. And you know we're not going to be able to just sum you up into some neat little category. Come in, have a conversation, discuss what's going on with us and get tested, get treated. That's beautiful. It's, um, it's people, when they think about STI treatment, they don't th often think about um, like holistic, emotional, psychological um, care, as well as this idea of, yeah, I mean, holistic care is a total life form of care. So it's, uh, it's quite, uh, I think, remarkable for many people when they're thinking about going in to get their genitals looked at and all of a sudden they're talking about um, how they view themselves in the world. Yes, you know, and we work in a biopsychosocial model and nothing is contained simply to just biomedical issues. Any areas and aspects of our health are influenced by, you know, manifold layers and factors. And I think you put it so great that you come in to get your genitals checked and the next thing you know, you're talking about your relationship with your body and relationships. There's so much to unpack and explore there. And, you know, that's something that I really love and enjoy about this work is that it's beyond STIs. It's, you know, beyond treatment. It's a larger examination of both society and the way that it impacts individuals. And I've been so glad to come in and talk on this podcast about some of the work that we do and how we see what the ripple effects of larger societal issues are just within, you know, our small little clinic. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I think I'm going to close it off just by saying thank you so much for all the work that you got, do over at Hassle Free. I know as somebody who grew up in Toronto, so many people in my life and who I've come across, um, I mean, I've been fortunate that they've been so open about their experiences and, and how much help you've done. And if this is people who are willing to talk about it, just think about how many people weren't willing to talk about the good experience they have. And I'm wondering if maybe you could just tell a little bit about uh, where you're located and how people can come see you. 
Sure. So we are located on 66 Girard Street East on the second floor at Church and Girard is the major intersection right by College Subway Station. We see a variety of people all around the GTA and Ontario. Please come visit us. Check out our website, hasslefreeclinic.org for our hours and give us a call. Thanks for listening to Infectious Info. Take care and be well. 